Uh, now, I didn't really think about what I was going to be preaching on on what days in this series. I just wrote the series. So there is no reason why I'm preaching on sin on Mother's Day. I kind of thought about it during the week and went, oh, that's an interesting one to have picked and have land on Mother's Day. Uh, it just happens to be where we're up to. Uh, so I want to start off by with just actually having a bit of a discussion around why do we follow rules? But what, what are the different motivations that some people have as to why they would even bother to follow whatever rules that might be around? Uh, one of the reasons people follow rules, realistically, is because they're actually people-pleasing. They don't care for the rules. They don't really actually believe in the rules, maybe even. Uh, but they don't want to stir the pot or they really want to please someone. Uh, and so they follow the rules. Uh, another reason why some people follow the rules is just to avoid the consequences. If it weren't for the consequences, they wouldn't follow the rules. But because of the consequences, they follow the rules. Uh, another reason why people follow the rules is sometimes it's actually easier to just follow the rules. That, that if they were to break the rules, there's all kinds of things that could happen. It might be consequences, there might be other reasons, and it's just easier to do so. It's not because I necessarily believe in or subscribe to those rules, it's just easier. Uh, it'd be too hard, too complicated to break the rules, so I'll follow them. Uh, sometimes you follow the rules because you know you should. Like you just know, all right, this rule, it's obviously there for a reason. So I'm going to follow that rule. I'm going to do what that rule says uh, because I should. I may not want to. It may not be the thing that I would choose to do, but I probably should. Like I should follow the rules. Uh, sometimes you follow the rules because you trust the rule giver. Uh, you trust the person who's made the rules and go, all right, I don't quite see why this rule is what it is, but I trust the person. I trust that, that mum knows what she's talking about. Word to the wise, mum knows what she's talking about. Uh, maybe that's the reason, because you trust the rule giver. And when we think about rules, and we think about the reality that there are rules, there do seem to be rules in our world and in our life and in our culture. Uh, if you've got the capacity to break a rule, or if you've, got a, sorry, if you've got the capacity to follow a rule, it actually means there's the capacity to break a rule. Just even the reality that rules exist uh, demonstrate that there is something about if I can follow it, I could break it. Where, where did this come from? Where, where did this idea that there actually is options? There's, there might be good things. There might be bad things. That's what I want us to take a little bit of time today uh, to dig in and have a look at. We're on to part four, technically. It's part three of Origins, but it, we had the initial one at the start. Uh, so we're looking at the fall today. What happened in what's commonly known as the fall? Now, if you don't know what the fall is, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you're exploring faith, maybe it's just a new concept. Uh, it's way back in Genesis. That's where you'll find this story. In Genesis 3, uh, we have Adam and Eve in a garden, uh, and they choose to disobey God. Uh, so we're looking at origins. And one of the premises behind this series is on one hand, we're trying to look at lots of views, and so we're trying to actually get a bit of an idea of what are the different viewpoints. But we're also trying to boil down to what's essential. What, what must you believe to kind of say that you subscribe to a Christian worldview? Uh, it might be that you go even further than what we actually talk to. You might have some really specific beliefs about some things, but it's trying to kind of boil down to the very essence of what is the Christian worldview? What are the things that all of Christianity, in essence, would agree with? Uh, and what's important? 
about that. Uh, so firstly, I want to look at some of the questions. There's a few questions that come up when it comes to Adam and Eve and the fall, things that people feel are important questions to wrestle with. Now, I may not answer all of these today, but there's some of the questions that come up. So one of the questions that some people have is, were Adam and Eve real people? Like, were they a real story? Or was this just a poem? Or is this just an understanding so that we can kind of understand the way the world is? Uh, was the Garden of Eden a real place? And if so, where was it? Like, where, where in the world, if it was a real place, where was the Garden of Eden? Did the fall literally happen? Or is it just a story, as I said before, that helps us understand? Where did Satan come from? How, how did he come to be in the story? And one of the philosophical questions that we're probably going to be wrestling if, with until Jesus returns is this. Why did God make the fall possible? Like, why was it actually given? And, you know, I've got some thoughts and there are some the Bible thoughts that we'll sort of look through as we go through some things. But this is a question bigger than a one-day sermon. Like, it's just not, you can't comprehend all of the facets that go into that just in this space. Uh, another question that comes about is if all humanity descended from Adam and Eve, where did Cain get his wife from? So if you've read any of the story of Genesis, so after Adam and Eve are sent out, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. He's sent out into the wilderness and he goes and marries someone. So did he marry his sister? But he's in a city and a city normally symbolizes that there's more than sort of, you know, one or two people. So if they were real people and if everyone descended from them, where did he get his wife from? If all humanity did not descend from Adam and Eve, and this is why it's important. If all humanity did not descend from Adam and Eve, how is it that we're all affected by Adam's sin? Uh, one of the aspects of the Christian faith is that it all goes back to Adam's sin. It all goes back to that eating the fruit in the garden. And so if everyone descended from Adam and Eve, well, that's easy. It's just original sin that just passes through the generations. If they weren't real people, then how is it that that worked? These are just some of the questions that we're going to loosely have a look at today, maybe not directly answering them, but these are some of the questions that come up when people are wrestling with the origins of sin. So what's essential? What do we need to know? Well, let's dig in. So we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to skip right to the point where it's actually the, um, the snake is tempting Eve. And this is what we find in Genesis 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, being the fruit, or the tree from the, eating the fruit from the tree, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the tree that they were told not to eat from was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, Eve says, oh, you should not eat it and you should not touch it. We'll come to that later. But what we have here is the snake turns to Eve and says this. God knows that you will be like God. There, there's this kind of this, this desire by people to want to be like God. This temptation seems to have been there from the very beginning, that the enemy knew that by raising this as what it meant, it would capture Eve's attention. 
this desire to sort of be able to understand everything God knows. That we seem to have wanted to be able to be like God from very early on. And so that's what happens here. The enemy says to her, you'll be like God. That's what's going to happen. Isn't that what you want? That's the temptation that she's drawn to. Uh, How this sort of plays out in our culture today, why this is so important, is we so often come across things and it's the idea of my truth. Uh, It's definitely a growing thing in our postmodern age where something can't be true unless we personally believe it to be true. See, what happens is if you remove God from from the, the schedule, if you remove God from being the arbiter of truth, if you remove the idea that there actually is a truth giver, and you say, actually, no, no gods exist. We are actually, we just sort of came to exist. Uh, there is no baseline to fall back to. And everything becomes individually determined. That you actually become the arbiter of your own truth. And so what we have in, in a lot of places today is we have lots of people that they actually won't believe in a, an objective truth. So well, no, that's not my truth. That's not my experience. So because it isn't my experience, it can't be true. And then you'll get two or three people that each have their own different objective truths that don't correspond with each other, that, that contradict one another. And well, what's true? What's real? Without there being a God in the picture, actually, that's a really hard question to answer. Because who gets to be the person that decides that there's truth? From the very, very earliest times, it seems that we've wanted this desire to be the ones that know what is true and to be able to decide what is true rather than sit in the tension of actually accepting and receiving that truth from a truth bringer. Uh, In verse 6, we continue on and it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So here we have the quintessential story of Adam and Eve. Now, firstly, to be clear and to clear it up, we don't know it was an apple. It calls it a fruit that's become a popularized idea that it was an apple tree. We don't know what the fruit was. But here is what we do know. We know that it was good for food. It wasn't that this apple was clearly toxic. It wasn't that this apple was clearly like it's a bad fruit. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. So if you were to go, let's say it wasn't apple for the just for the interest of the story. If you go to an apple tree and you're looking to pick a juicy, delicious apple to eat, this is the apple probably that looks best on the tree. This was not a worm-infested you know, fruit hanging from a tree that you kind of look at and go, oh, I don't want that. And it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So one of the challenges that we have in our culture today is that we often look at something and go, it, it can't be sinful if it seems good. It just, it seems good. It seems nice. It's not hurting anyone can't be sinful if it's like that. It seems to be good. 
And the challenge there is that sin is not sin because it's inherently bad. It's not that it looks bad. It's not whether it looks good or bad. It's not that it looks toxic or if it looks good. It's sin because it goes against God's instruction. It wasn't that they ate this disgusting fruit. The fruit looked good. It was pleasing. But they were told not to eat it. Sin is sin, not because of the way it looks, not because of even maybe its fallout, not even because it might lead to good things. But it's sin because it goes against God's instruction. And as we were sort of alluding to before, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Eve desired to know everything. Her desire to know everything superseded her desire to follow God's instructions. Eve's desire to be able to understand, to sit at the table with God, to, to almost sit as peers with God and be able to comprehend all things at the same level as God. Her desire for that superseded her desire to follow the instructions of God. Now, this is a really hard one for people who are exploring faith because it kind of seems like a cop-out. Because the answer actually is God's ways are higher than our ways. That actually we will not, we cannot fully comprehend the ways of God. There are going to be some things that we look at and go, I just, oh, I struggle with that. I, there's a tension, there's an uncertainty, there's a, it just doesn't quite make sense to me. But actually, that is the way it will need to be in some areas. And I'm not going to go into exactly what those are today. That comes up and there's debate over what that means. But this has been a wrestle since the beginning of time, that, that we want to sit as peers with God and be the ones that determine what is right. And it, and it should make sense to us. It should be logical to us that, that it shouldn't be something that challenges our own thinking. That's the desire for us to have the wisdom of God. And that's us wanting to be able to sit alongside God and understand all things. Uh, the further I get into faith, just being a little bit honest and candid, the more questions I actually find myself having. The, the further down the rabbit hole I get, the more I find myself going, how does that work? And I, I'm intrigued and I, I want more wisdom. I want more knowledge. I'm not going to say that that isn't the case. And I don't even think the desire for that in itself is the problem. But not being willing to recognize and accept that there are going to be things that we just don't get. And we have to be willing to allow God to be God and let us be us. That was what was going on in the very beginning. It continues on in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? How did you know? What, what's changed? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
Have you eaten from the tree? The, the only way you could know that, it's kind of an odd thought to think that they, they wouldn't have known they were naked. That there was kind of no knowledge that that was a thing. Whereas we're all like, no, we, we will know when we're naked. Like we know when that's going on. We make sure we're clothed in public. It's a good thing to do. Please do. Please continue. They didn't know, but God knew from that moment something has changed. We see this is what we're told back in Genesis chapter 2. Because this is important. Because Adam is the one who he's talking to at this moment. Genesis 2 verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So this is before Eve is created. And the Lord God commanded the man. Eve is not on the scene at the moment. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And this is where that one of those questions that comes up, and it's a pesky question that I sit in the tension of not knowing the answer. Why did God put that tree in the garden? Okay, I've got some thoughts, and that's a sermon for another day. But why? Why did he even make this possible? If that tree wasn't there, they couldn't eat from it. If that tree wasn't there, sin couldn't enter the world. Again, come and chat with me afterwards. I'll, I'll, I'll sit there and riff with you for a while because that's a very long and, and deep and convoluted topic. But what we do see here is the instruction to not eat from the tree is actually given to Adam before Eve exists. The only way that Eve actually knows about this is that Adam passed it on to her. That the original instruction is actually given to Adam right up front. And that's important. So we find out here that he talks to Adam and says, To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food for all, for all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. And so, so Adam and Eve also receives a punishment. I'm mostly focusing here on Adam because that's what plays out through most of the rest of Scripture. Is this idea Adam was given a very clear instruction. Uh, one of the reasons we know that something went askew in actually it being passed on to Eve, is that Eve actually says to the enemy when he says, you know, what's going on, uh, we must not eat it and we must not touch it. But nowhere in the original command is that actually given. They weren't told not to touch it. God never said not to touch it. Somewhere along the line, the instruction given from Adam through to Eve didn't give a true reflection of what it was. The command was given to Adam to ensure that that was brought across. We're reminded again here that Adam received the command, that in many ways he was to be held most to account for what actually took place in terms of eating fruit from the tree. But this is where we get another interesting little tidbit that comes in. Uh, in verse 22, and the Lord God said, 
the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what there's two things that take place here. Firstly, we see that Adam and Eve don't actually die immediately. That they're told beforehand, you will die. And yet what actually seems to take place is they don't literally die. But they do die. Their relationship with God is severed somewhat permanently without something that will happen later on in the Bible story. They are immediately separated from God. The the spiritual connection that they have with God is lost. They are now in sin. But also what takes place is actually an act of compassion. And some people would read this and go, it's actually not compassionate. You're not allowing them to live. Like You're going to be the cause for why they actually die. But God recognizes if they're able to reach out and take the fruit, they would stay in this state for eternity. If they're able to keep eating from the tree of life, they will not be able to be restored to right relationship with God. And so he removes their capacity to eat from the tree. He removes their capacity to eat from the tree of life. And we actually find the tree of life again later on in the book of Revelation. So come back in a few weeks when we get to heaven, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how this all wraps up towards the end. But this is an act of compassion that God actually sends them out of the garden so that they are not able to be caught in this cycle of death. Now, what does the New Testament say about the fall? Uh, There's a whole lot of stuff, and I'm being brief. It's kind of hard to summarize all of this in one thing because there's a lot to it. What does the New Testament have to say about the fall? Because the early church had very clear understandings of how this played out and what was important. Uh, Firstly, we have in 1 Corinthians. So this is a letter that Paul wrote to the people in Corinth. Chapter 15, 21 to 22 says this. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Then in Romans 5 verse 12 and 18 we read this. Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 18, consequently just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Uh, The New Testament again and again puts the blame for sin entering the world on Adam. Eve was the one who took the fruit. Eve was the one who gave the fruit to her husband. It says in the text, if you notice there, that he was with her. 
he had lots of opportunities in that moment and say, hey, remember that command that God gave? Like, you remember that thing that God said not to do? Let's not do that. The command was given to Adam. And so it's all, throughout the New Testament, it's pointed back to the fact that through Adam, sin entered the world. But praise be to God, the righteous act of one man would make a way for that activity to be justified. We also see the story, the story of Adam and the story of Jesus. And actually how so much of the story actually aligns that the main elements kind of have an example in both of the stories. In the story of Adam and Eve, we have a tree. And in the New Testament, in the story of Jesus, we have a cross made out of wood, often called a tree, referenced in that sense. Uh, in the original story of Adam and Eve, we have a curse that enters the world. And then in the story of Jesus, we have an activity which defeats that curse. In the story of Adam and Eve, we have thorns and thistles that come into the world because of that sin. And then in the story of Jesus, it's really drawn out that a crown of thorns is placed on his head. In the story of Adam and Eve, we have sweat entering the world. Curse the curse of, of sin. Sweat enters the world and through painful toil, they will work and they will sweat. And then Jesus sweats blood on the cross. And in the original story, we have death entering the world. Not immediately. Separation, immediate, actual death was to come. But then through Jesus, we have the story of the resurrection. Where that comes forward and makes a way for death and sin to be defeated for all time. You see, an understanding of sin's origins, at least the basic aspects of it, is essential to understand our need for Jesus. If a person doesn't recognize that they're a sinner, if they don't believe that they're a sinner, if they don't have an understanding that sin is a real thing and that there is objective truth and there is actually a way of knowing that sin is in the world. If you don't know that you're a sinner, you can't know that you need a saviour. And so an understanding of sin, as, you know, as fun as it might be, I'm being very sarcastic there, you need to understand the reality of sin in the world to have a full understanding of why we need Jesus. But what matters? What matters in this story? Now, again, there are, this is a theology that's been debated since the time of Jesus. There are so many different trains of thought that you can take. One of the things that I, I want to draw to here is, and I'm, I'm, I will unpack this a little bit, because some will look at this and go, hang on, there's, there's more to it than that. Yes, there is. But somehow, through Adam, sin entered the world, covering all people, requiring a saviour. The reason I put somehow there is there are two trains of thought. There is the train of thought that Adam and Eve were literal people who literally ate of the fruit and literally everyone on earth descends from them and that's called original sin. It is the mostly widely held view within the Christian faith. It is not the only view held through the Christian faith. 
Uh, there are those who would say that the story of Adam and Eve was actually a story. It was meant to help us see the realities of sin, but it was a story. It was not real. It still is required that somehow through that story, somehow in that story, that sin entered the world and that all people fall under the, the need of a saviour because all people actually fall under that sin. Uh, the existence of death is a problem if you want to take a non-literal reading of Genesis. Uh, so one of the main reasons this comes out is for those who are in a Christian faith who would hold uh, to evolution and hold to the way that evolution exists in the world. Evolution actually requires death. That it's actually through death that more of the, you know, more different things are made and different things come out in that space. And so evolution would actually suggest that right back to the beginning, actually death was required. And so the fact that death didn't exist, if you take it as a literal reading, and then it comes into life, that it was a, it's a punishment of sin, is actually a problem if you want to have anything other than a literal reading of Genesis. But this is where I want us to sort of draw it in at the end. Everything about original sin and everything about understanding the role of sin all comes back to the starting place for Christianity. That Christian theology doesn't start with Genesis. Now, one of the hardest things, I think, for people that are exploring faith is they get given a Bible, which is great. And they go, well, all books read from the start, so let's go to the start. And they get stuck on Genesis. They get stuck on Adam and Eve. They get stuck on how does this all play out, and, and they've got all these questions. Christian theology starts with Christ. It starts at the cross. If Jesus truly lived and if Jesus truly died and if Jesus truly rose again, if Jesus truly ascended and if Jesus truly promised to return, if those things are true, everything else is worth exploring for the rest of life and trying to understand how they map together and trying to understand how we would live for God in that space. But that's where it starts. That's what someone needs to come to know and to understand. Are those things true? And then you can actually rest everything else and you can sit in the tension of not knowing exactly how it plays out. One of the great things for me, I, I really enjoy Genesis because I like to think and I like to rest and I like to kind of go, oh, what's going on here? I like the questions that get raised. I like the tension of I like science, but I'm also challenged by the fact that it doesn't work in all of these ways. I really enjoy that because I can hold it lightly. It isn't the be all and an end all of faith. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus is. And to some degree, I can also hold that tension lightly because of my understanding of Genesis. I know that the ways of the human heart is to want to be like God, to want to know everything, to want to understand everything, to want to be able to sit and go, yeah, that makes perfect logical sense. I get that. But I recognize that that is actually part of what is the, the, the temptation as a person is to be like God and to have to know everything. And to recognize that actually that's not my place in this world. Now, I'm still going to try and explore it all and dig in and wrestle and, and grapple with and try and come up with answers because I enjoy it. But I can hold all the things that I'm not sure about lightly. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, I'm going to hold them tightly. 
Because that's where faith really rests. So I encourage you, I haven't, I've deliberately not tried to wrap this one up in a completely nice, neat bow, because I think there's some strength in the wrestling. I think there's actually an aspect of sort of trying to work out exactly how does this play out. But somehow, what, what would be the bare bones of what we actually need to know? Somehow through Adam, sin entered the world. Covers all people so that all people require a saviour. But the good news of Jesus is that he has done on the cross everything that is needed for all people in all time to come back to him. And that is good news. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you. We don't always understand your ways. We don't always understand your purposes. We don't always understand why you do what you do or why you've done what you've done. But we thank you for being God. We pray that you would help us to rest in our salvation through Christ and to journey with you for the rest of our lives, coming to understand what we can come to learn and to know. But I pray you would give us the strength to hold in tension the questions that we will continue to have. And just to rest in the Saviour's arms. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.